Hello and welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Nir Shafir. And I'm Oscar Aguirre Mandujano. And today we're going to be speaking about the Jewish community of Salonika in the 20th century. Uh, and we have a perfect guest for this episode. His name is Devin Nahr. He is the Isaac Al-Hadef Professor of Sephardic Studies and an Associate Professor of History and Jewish Studies at the University of Washington. He's just written a book that came out last year. It was called uh, Jewish Salonika Between the Ottoman Empire and Modern Greece. Uh, it's out on Stanford University Press. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So today what we're going to be talking about is uh, the legacy of the Ottoman world in modern Greece and specifically uh, about uh, Salonika or Thessaloniki or Salonik, depending on the language you want to speak. Uh, as most of our listeners probably know, this was a city with the largest uh, Jewish community uh, in the Ottoman Empire and in, even in the post-Ottoman world. And often this city is kind of imagined as this perfect world of cosmopolitanism of three different communities uh, existing side by side in the Ottoman world until, let's say, its integration in, uh, into the nation state of Greece in 1913 and eventually its near total destruction at the hands of the Nazis uh, over the course of World War II. But we're going to challenge that and we're going to be looking at especially you know, these questions of rupture and continuity in the post-Ottoman world how the Jewish community of Salonika actually had a very different uh, sense of locality, a city-oriented identity. And we're going to be talking about that with Devin. So thanks again, Devin, for coming on the podcast. I'm happy to be here. Thank you, Nir. And I wanted to start with this question, uh, actually an observation. Uh, I noticed as I was walking over here that the three of us uh, are all descendants of uh, communities of former of migrants from the Ottoman Empire, Jewish migrants. So my family came from Kurdistan. Uh, mine came from Aleppo. And mine came from Salonika. So, and each of us kind of, in a sense, also represent different waves of migration, different uh, circuits. So, you know, my family ended up going to Israel. Oscars went to Mexico, correct? Yep. And uh, Devons went uh, to America. So maybe let's just open it with this question of, you know, family, of using these family connections to explore uh, history. Because from what I understand, it was your uncle that kind of opened up this whole question to begin with. The, the family connection was absolutely essential for me in sparking my interest in history, in the Ottoman Empire, in, in Jewish history, in Sephardic studies, and in Salonika specifically. Uh -huh. And, um, you know, I think it, it goes even further back than, you know, my uncle, uh, my grandfather, that entire generation uh, was born either at the end of the Ottoman period or just after Salonika had become part of Greece. But growing up, you know, these were distinctions that were, didn't, I didn't really understand what they meant. Yeah. Um, what was most captivating for me were, I think, some of the images that I saw of that, of my family, of my ancestors in that early part of the 20th century. My great-grandfather, for example, was a rabbi, a chacham mm. in Salonika, in Ottoman Salonika. There was a picture of him wearing a fez, you know, and I was always struck. I was the only kid I knew uh, growing up in suburban New Jersey who had uh, a photograph on the wall of his, you know, ancestors wearing a fez or mm -hmm. my, my great grandfather, my great grandmother wearing the traditional Ottoman Jewish garb. And the, the, those images, I think, really, really struck me. And uh, on, on top of that, then we get the, the geography. So is my family from like Turkey or Greece? Well, mm -hmm. it was the Ottoman Empire. And what will what? How how can that be? You right. know what 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 is the Ottoman Empire? And if they are from the Ottoman Empire or from the parts of the Ottoman Empire that are now Turkey and Greece, why did I hear almost no Turkish or Greek 
when I was growing up from that older generation, but rather I heard a language that was identified for me as, as Espanol, as Spanish, mm-hmm. which was what they were, a term they were using to refer to Ladino, what we call Ladino or Judeo-Spanish or Judesmo. So that, that sort of combination of cultural and geographic and uh, visual uh, ideas and uh, images that I came into contact with, mm. sort of trying to figure out the puzzle, uh, led me to explore... Uh, the kind of history that is revealed, I hope, in 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 my book and some of my other research. Mm-hmm. So maybe for those listeners that uh, don't know uh, how this major Jewish community came to Thessaloniki to Sal- uh, Salonika, could you just give us just you know a brief background as to uh, how the how the Jews settled down there? Jewish presence in Thessaloniki is 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 very old. It's as old as the city itself, going mm. back twenty three hundred years ago. There were Greek speaking Romano Jews in the city since uh, Roman times. Right. Apostle Paul uh, preached there uh, unsuccessfully in, uh, in, in Thessaloniki. But the, the, really the, the bulk of the Jewish community that emerges in, in, in early modern, especially modern times, trace their origins to the wake of the expulsion of the Jews from Spain mm-hmm. in 1492. Uh, many of those Jews leaving Spain and also Portugal, sometimes passing through Italy and other places along the Mediterranean, uh, wound up settling in Salonika as in other cities in the Ottoman Empire, Istanbul, and uh, other places as well. And um, that's sort of the bulk of the Jewish community had a very prominent presence in uh, in the city demographically as the majority or if or the plurality at some moments um, from the 16th century until uh, until World War One. Mm-hmm. And so that's sort of the the basis of the of the foundation of the of the community. So by the time uh, you know, by 1900, they were kind of 40, 50 percent of the city, maybe. Yeah, yeah. They, that's those. Those are the numbers. Maybe 80 or 90 thousand Jews in a city of 170 thousand people. Wow. The rest of the population comprised of uh, of Greek-speaking Orthodox Christians, of Turkish-speaking uh, Muslims, a very tiny Armenian community, some mm-hmm. Roma, and also another community which is known as the the Sabatians or the Dunme. These mm-hmm. were the descendants of. Jews who had converted to Islam uh, in the 17th century, following the example of their uh, of their leader, quote unquote, Shabbat. false Messiah right, Shabbatai right, Tzvi. Right. Although for them it was the real Messiah, it was not right. false for them, uh, <laughs> which I think is important to note. And so sometimes, actually, uh, some people, because the 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 the, the Dunme uh, were descended from Jews, sometimes they, the they that population gets counted, in, or the the Jewish, the so-called Jewish mm-hmm. influence on the city is is perceived to be even greater. I mean, the the question the Dunme is a very interesting one, and I, you know, they're obviously still a community today that exists in Turkey, uh, even if secretly. Uh, but I do want to focus. Yeah, please, uh, we yeah. we should focus on this, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, the centrality of of this Jewish community in Thessaloniki, and maybe we can just talk about kind of well, how did they deal with you know, as these new ideas of belonging and citizenship and so forth are kind of uh, expounded upon and developed in the late nineteenth century Ottoman Empire. Uh, what were their, let's say, responses to that? Uh, and just to kind of bring us up to like 1913 and the different possibilities that were there. I think Jewish leaders in Salonika try to situate themselves within three interconnected but slightly distinct domains in the course of the 19th century. This is, again, the period of um, Ottoman reorganization, the period of the Tanzimat. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is also a period in which new ideas not only of citizenship 
um, but also of uh, the the penetration of European culture and nationalism enter into the into this world. And uh, Salonic and Jewish leaders are trying to express um, a sense of connection and identity and mm. citizenship, not only as Ottoman citizens but also as citizens uh, of the city of Salonica. They mm -hmm. develop a not only kind of an imperial consciousness but also a local civic consciousness as members of the of of the city community and also as members of their Jewish community and all of these things are happening at the same time I mean, think about it the Ottoman citizenship law is 1869 mm -hmm. the formation of the municipality of Salonika is 1869 mm. the uh, creation of a Jewish communal council that officially organizes all of the Jews into a cohesive institutional organization 1870 so these three affiliations are emerging and developing in uh, at the same time and, and in conversation with each other so there's a very close association between the city itself and the community yeah, very much. I think the city, the community, and and the empire, and having a kind of a, a sense of political belonging uh, to these three domains right. emerge simultaneously, and they they emerge as complementary to each other, but also in competition in mm. some ways. So sometimes you'll find Jewish leaders emphasizing their status as Salonikans uh, over being Ottomans mm -hmm. or being Jews more than being Salonikans, and sometimes they will all come together. They'll coalesce, and there will be statements in the press and in other sources. Uh, um, of leaders of the community articulating an, a, self, a, a sense of identity as Ottoman, Salonican Jews. I mean, I think this is uh, an important point because, you know, so often we just think of Jews or Christians, right. you know, as this kind of undifferentiated communities, uh, all under, you know, the chief rabbinate or something like that that existed throughout the empire. But I think this importance of locality is really something that's, uh, you know, a nice innovation of your of your work. So in terms of the differentiation of Jews within the Ottoman Empire. I think that's a very sal salient point. And for Salonican Jews, this was especially evident um, in the late 19th century as they try to carve out a sense of a city-based identity and what distinguishes Jews from Salonika from Jews everywhere else in the empire and also what distinguishes Salonika from other cities uh, in the empire. And, and they begin to develop an argument about Salonika as a kind of a Jewish city that was made possible because of the warm welcome that their ancestors had received from the Sultan hmm. after the expulsion from Spain in 1492. So they use this close, this sense of close connection between Jews and Salonika as a way also then to express their status as the um, sort of as the, the best representatives of Ottoman Jewry, the hmm. most successful and the most uh, demographically significant and the most prosperous Jewish community. Uh, they tie that into also an expression of allegiance to the Ottoman Empire. I recall something in in your writing that, you know, on the 400th anniversary of the expulsion in 1892 that they kind of composed, uh, what was it? I can't remember now. Yeah, I mean, they, they, they celebrated this, uh, they, they celebrated this moment right. of uh, 1892, not uh, as a moment to mourn um, their expulsion from Spain four centuries before, but as a way to express gratitude mm -hmm. to uh, to the Ottoman uh, Ottoman regime, and as a way to actually make an argument within a Jewish context that while European Jews at this time are looking at the Ottoman Jews as being backwards and uncivilized, mm -hmm. 
um, suffering under the yoke of oppression in the Ottoman realm, they come out and they say, no, actually, we were the first Jews to be, to be liberated, to be emancipated. We've been part of Ottoman society since 1492, whereas France it didn't happen until 17, uh, you know, after 1789 mm. and in other parts of Europe, you know, much, much later. I mean, there's a, this is a, they're developing their own myth, mm-hmm. their, own, their own Ottoman Jewish mythology and, and romance as a way to better position themselves within the framework of European Jewish society and also as a way to shore up their position in Ottoman society. This is a period, again, of uh, of the reign of Abdul Hamid and mm-hmm. the place of non-Muslims in that environment. We can look at what happened to the Bulgarians in the 1870s, what will happen to the Armenians just a couple years later in right, 1894. And I think Jews, Jews are very aware of the 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 fragility of their status Mm -hmm. in the ottoman empire and so on the one hand i see their expressions of uh, loyalty to the ottoman empire as as really authentic and genuine but also as part of a defense Mm. a defense mechanism that's actually a very interesting and a very fine point you make on the significance of the city and locality in the in the construction of the identity of these communities and and its legacy after the the ottoman empire something that i find very interesting for example is, is 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 how Ultimately, the um, identity we refer to when after we after some these communities migrate to outside the the, the uh, former Ottoman lands is usually in relation to the city, right? Like either I'm a Jew from Aleppo or I'm a Jew from Damascus, and there is also a sense of pride of that city. Hmm. Uh, but I would like to to turn the question around to how to to follow up on legacy and what was the how would you see the legacy of of this Jewish community in Saloniki, not only, in a way, the other side of the coin, like we see that the city transform of the city impacts the the identity of, of this community, but also how this community now we can trace in uh, after uh, 1940s, its legacy in Saloniki as a city. The point about the local identity, I think, is is re- really a very powerful one, especially as it relates to the case of Salonika. Wherever Salonikan Jews went, in the beginning of the 20th century, whether it was Paris, New York, uh, Tel Aviv, and other mm-hmm. locales, they referred to themselves as Salaniklis, and they created institutions, as many immigrants groups did, the, the local identity, the, the Hemsharili kind of component was very, very much in, in evidence. So there was the Association Amical des Israelites Saloniques in Paris. There was the Hermandad Saloniquiota de, uh, de New York, mm. and there was Ole uh, Histadrut Ole uh, Selanik in uh, in Tel Aviv. So very very strong sense of of that local identity, and that's transferred among Salonican Jews living in the city itself, who continue to claim the banner as being actually the the most authentic Salonicans, because in this context in which uh, their populations going to and fro, especially in the con- beginning of the, the Balkan Wars, World War I, and especially after the exchange of populations between Greece and Turkey, that will result in um, all of the Muslims leaving Salonika and uh, over 100,000 Orthodox Christians arriving in Salonika. Jews are the only ones who can claim to have mm. long-standing roots in the city, and that's further reflected in the language that's used in the Jewish and in the Greek press after in the interwar years, Jews referred to themselves as Salonikans, and the Christians tended to refer to themselves as Macedonians, hmm. as residents of the broader region. The, the most important uh, Greek newspaper 
in the city then and still one of the important ones still in existence today was called Macedonia. It was a Jewish newspaper that was called Journal de Salonique. That hmm. The Jews were connected to the, the city and uh, the Christians were connected to the countryside and that would be a transformation that would take place, the attempt on the part of Greek-speaking Christians to reclaim or uh, appropriate the identity of the city and integrate it into a, a sense of Greek national belonging, that would be a long, a long-standing process that would take in, in, in many, many, uh, many, many years for that to be accomplished. I mean, I think this is interesting because uh, you know, so far you've explained this new Jewish myth of this attachment of uh, uh, to the city of Salonika, uh, Salonika itself, and as a way of expressing kind of imperial identity. But now, you know post-1913, post-integration uh, of the city into this new Greek nation, uh, those myths, in a sense, no longer function or have to be repurposed and redeveloped. And just on that question, I was just wondering, what is the attitude or the view of uh, of the Jewish community of, uh, of Salonika uh, towards the Mubadala, towards the population exchange uh, between the Greeks and the Turks? I'll take it in two parts, okay. if I can. Yeah, I mean, I, the, the first comment about the repurposing of the of the mythologies that you see the intellectuals in Salonika, jewish intellectuals spend a lot of time and energy trying to uh regalvanize or recreate or reinvent a myth of the relationship between jews and the city in order to suit the new environment mm -hmm. that they're living in within greece so rather than a mythology about the romance between jews and the ottoman empire since 1492 right Jewish intellectuals of a certain more, I guess you could say, those who are interested in integration into the Greek society, they say, no, 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 we have to start Jewish history not in 1492, but in antiquity. And we have to make the story of Jews in Salonika mm. about the symbiosis between Jews and Greeks from antiquity until the present. And they speak about Salonika being the meeting place between the intellectual uh, productivity of Athens and of Jerusalem. Where do those two threads of, of Hellenism and Hebraism meet and intertwine to create the most perfect union? Salonika. <laughs> and this is a kind of myth. It's one of a number of right. myths that are, are, are deployed during this period as Jews try to reposition themselves and ensure a place for themselves in Greek Salonika precisely because that place was no longer secure. Right. But it must have been difficult because, you know, I think, as you mentioned in some of your writing, that uh, that this is that Hebraicism and Hellenism are kind of seen as opposites. You know, one is like the irrationality of faith, and one is the you know perfection of reason. They they, they so they have to work hard yeah. to try to do it. And I, I think uh, there are other there are other ways that they they seek to to try to create that kind of um, that kind of synergy. Uh, in addition to the, this on the myth, mythological level, but on sort of the more practical social and cultural level is that the Greek language mm. becomes a very important uh, place or, or meeting point for the possibilities of transforming those who had been Ottoman Jews into, into Hellenic Jews. Right. And the, there is a hope or aspiration on the part of Jewish leaders and on the part of Greek officials that if Jews could learn the Greek language and tie their own destiny to that of the Greek state, then they could become accepted as legitimate members and citizens of, of Greek society. Mm -hmm. Whether they could become Greeks 
though in the way that Christians, Orthodox Christians were Greeks, that really was less clear. Right. I mean, and I think what's most interesting about this period is that this isn't just a problem for Jews, right? The entirety of Greek society at this moment is a multilingual society. You have all these uh, Christians uh, coming from Anatolia, speaking a variety of languages, uh, often Turkish, but also kind of local, you know, Lazja and all these other ones. Uh, you know, you have Albanians, uh, you have Muslims speaking Greek, you have a whole mix of people that are kind of forced into this, uh, I don't know, crucible of the Greek nation and try to uh, Hellenicize in a sense. Even even communities uh, that were coming from Anatolia, like the Karamanlus and so yeah. on, that they were already speaking Greek or some type of Greeks, were not readily accepted as 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 Greeks, right? right. Like and you have that with the with the population exchange. The people that came were neither neither Turks, but also they were not Greeks, uh, mm. even if they were Christians and they were just moved in, they were still constantly discriminated. So there was like a like this constant tension of trying to figure out who you were and uh, and trying to reconcile uh, what was your ultimate identity, either were you Greek or mm. Turk or Jew or Christian. Yeah, in some ways, you're the some of the other popular, like Jews will have a recognized place for themselves in both in Ottoman society, but also in Greece. Greece will recognize Jews as a discrete and distinct community in Salonika and other parts of the country, whereas some of these other Christian populations, like the uh, those speaking, like the, the Slav-speaking Macedonian, the, the Slav Macedonians, who are Orthodox Christians, there will be laws that will be implemented that say it's illegal to speak that language. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you could be, sho- castor oil will be shoved down their throats, or they could be, you know, put in prison for speaking the language. Um, and that's part of actually the possibility of Orthodox Christians being integrated and assimilated into this new emergent uh, Greek nation. Mm-hmm. Whereas the prospects and possibilities of Jews being able to enter that inner kind of circle, being the flag the flag bearer of the of the Greek nation, were were, were limited by virtue of them still being Jewish. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe another another interesting question would be to consider that this kind of struggle didn't happen only. Uh, in terms of the state and the community, right? We usually think of like the state accepting them as Greeks or not. But even uh, some of the sources seems to have like the people themselves were wondering what they were. And uh, one of the sources I, uh, that I read with you, uh, which is uh, this journal of uh, of, uh, of a Jewish guy from Istanbul that came to Seattle, uh, in the pages of his own personal diary he seems to be questioning constantly whether he's an ottoman he's a brother of the ottomans he's mm-hmm. a jew should they talk ottoman or should they uh, should they speak ottoman or should they speak ladino and and he's trying also to to appeal to his uh, to his fellow um community members right so this struggle also happened at the personal level beyond beyond this state community interaction that's absolutely true i mean and and that's actually revealed i think one of the interesting places where that's revealed is in such a, a simple kind of uh, document like a, a wedding registration mm. or a birth registration where uh, even in Greece, um, Jews were had to receive permission from the Jewish religious authorities to get married. And if you get married in the, in the Jewish way, this is a legacy of the Ottoman Ottoman practice. Mm-hmm. You then go to the Jewish community and you'd register the wet, the marriage, and then that would get registered in the municipal records. If you look at these records in the Jewish community, they're all in in Judeo Spaniel in Ladino until World War II. But then the one place where the people getting married have a choice 
as a way to say like who they are is how they sign their name. And hmm. it's really interesting because you see many people continuing to sign in the Sephardic Hebrew script known as Solitreo in, in Judeo-Spanish. Some people sign in Greek because mm-hmm. they want to show, even in this Jewish context, I, I want to I want to present myself as as a Greek. Some will sign in Latin letters, meaning that I have a cultural orientation that connects me to France, especially, but possibly right. also Italy. And then you have some young aspiring Zionists who have been captivated by that movement. Maybe they've been to Palestine and they will sign their names in Ashkenazi Hebrew cursive, like modern Hebrew mm-hmm. cursive. And I think that's a small little moment in which when you have to make a decision about how you want to self-represent your self-represent you in a, in a kind of a public way they could they could do that just with their just with their signature that would speak volumes about their cultural background possibly political orientation maybe even class mm-hmm. which is kind of interesting because the, the diary i was talking uh, before that i the the um this year at the university of washington has both ottoman and ladino and and uh, lombehar who is the one who writes the, the diary signs in Ottoman when he's writing Ottoman, and then science in uh, in Solitreo when he's writing in in Latino. So there is also this kind of um, fluidity even in in the way mm-hmm. he represents himself. And it's also it's not just a question of uh, you know Greek versus Ladino, but it's also you know French, Hebrew, absolutely uh, all these different you know a mix of options and languages here. And people sign. And write in different languages for right. different purposes. You can find somebody writing to the Jewish community in Judeo-Espanol, in the Solitreo, Solitreo script. And that same person, you can find him writing to a uh, representative of the Greek state in Greek and to, say, the Alliance Israelite Universelle in Paris in, in French. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was not a contradiction involved in in in. in being able to converse in these different languages, but it was a reflection of the multiple uh, kind of vectors and the multiple sides of of that rather complex uh, identity and and sense of self and community that was being fashioned at the time. Welcome back to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Nir Shafir. I'm with Oscar Aguirre-Mandahano. And we're speaking with Devin Nahr uh, at the University of Washington on this question of the Jewish community of Salonika in the 20th century. And Devin, I just wanted to follow up on one small point. You know, you were talking about this uh, question of marriage certificates and how people, uh, in order to get any sort of documents uh, or official identity cards or things like that, had to go through the Jewish community. That was the... Uh, kind of central node of interaction with the state. Uh, and it seems to me that this is, you know, I think as you mentioned yourself, that this is a continu- continuity of sorts uh, of, of communal organization from the Ottoman period. That's exactly right. I mean, you see, you know, there, there was a lot of debate about this, both within the Greek state and among Jewish leaders in the period right after 1913. Will sort of this robust Jewish community continue to operate in modern Greece? And Greek state officials 
as many other European states were like, you cannot have a state within a state and perpetuating a semi-autonomous or autonomous Jewish entity mm-hmm. or, or uh, other kind of legal entity within the state would be would undermine the legitimacy of the of the entire project of the nation state. Right. And you find some Jewish progressives, you could say, who are also in this favor. They say, we should have a one-to-one relationship as citizens with our state, just like any other citizen of our country. But then there was a, 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 the, the bulk of the, the voices coming out of the Jewish community that wanted to see this their Jewish community preserved. They saw it, even the socialists conceded that the Jewish community operated as if it were a municipality or a state. And that's the kind of weight that they mm. saw it having. And that's the kind of weight that many of them wanted to see perpetuated. Now, what happens in the wake of World War One is with the establishment of the League of Nations and the institution of a series of, uh, uh, of treaties that are intended to protect the rights of minorities all throughout Europe, Salonican Jews use the language mm. of minority rights as a way to recast what had been the privileges that they had benefited from in the Ottoman Empire of self-government, and now they recast that in the language of minority rights. So the community uh, should continue to exist and it should continue to operate um, the schools that it did, the uh, over uh, over 20 different Jewish in- philanthropic institutions and many other uh, elements within the community, that those entities should continue to operate, not because they're getting special dispensation, mm-hmm. but because they deserve they, they, they deserve them. They are the rights that are inherent in their status as a minority population right. in, uh, in Greece. And so this is one of the reasons why um, the uh, registrations for the members of the community are all mediated with with the Jewish community recruitment to serve in the Greek military, that's all mediated really? through well, through the through the Greek state, and it's also it you know, this results in Salonika, the Jewish community of Salonika, becoming really the last Jewish community in Europe to operate according to you could say in some ways a pre-modern mm-hmm. corporate model, but according to the principles of the rights of national minorities. Right. And it's also results in Greece being the only country in uh, in in Europe, and I would include Turkey in this, by the way, that does not institute civil marriage. Hmm. So it preserves the Ottoman practice of relegating or delegating civil status questions and legal questions, especially relating to marriage and divorce, to the Jewish religious authorities. Mm-hmm. And the Greek state, just as in Ottoman times before, the Greek state says, if you are a Jew, you are compelled to obey the rulings of the rabbis. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, we, the Greek state, because we back the rabbis, we will punish you. <laughs> like that's a very that's a very old school kind of dynamic that you could yeah. you can imagine that happening. That did happen in the Ottoman realm, but to see that happening in the nineteen thirties in Greece is really, really quite remarkable. Mm-hmm. I mean, and not to stretch this too far, but in the sense, there is no civil marriage in Israel today, Correct. right? So, this so is, is, they are the last uh, heirs. I mean, there are a couple other places right. in, in the Middle East, uh, we could say, that, that have the, but that's exactly right. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, the Israel and the Greece connection, you know, Greece has to introduce civil marriage in order to become part of the European Union yeah. in 1982. So that's the first time when Jews can marry Orthodox Christians without one converting to the other's religion. Mm-hmm. But the perpetuation of this separate marriage status was actually perversely very exciting to Nazi officials 
when they arrived in the city in uh, in the, during the Second World War because they saw in the strict separation between Jews and Greeks or Jews and Christians their ideal uh, their ideal anti-Semitic legislation. <laughs> they said if only the rest of Europe was so uh, enlightened that they would uh, enforce and prevent the intermarriage between Jews and the dominant populations, Europe would be a much uh, a much better place. <laughs> what irony. Um, on this note, I do want to talk about, you know, we're talking about marriage certificates, we're talking about documents, we're talking about essentially archives. Right. Uh, and this question of where are the archives uh, of the Jewish community of Salonika and how did you uh, find them? When I be began my research, one of the questions that I was really intrigued by was where has there been some scholarship about Salonika and about the Jews? Very little of that was expressing the voices and viewpoints of the Jews themselves in their own language or mm -hmm. languages. And I was especially interested in, in Judeo-Spanish. Uh, and when I began my search, I couldn't find these records. They were not so easily available. The first problem was that there was a big fire in Salonika, also a big fire in Izmir uh, around the same time, mm -hmm. the one in Salonika, 1917, Izmir, just uh, five years later that destroyed, in the case of Salonika, all of the records of the Jewish community up until that time. Hmm. I was aware that the archives had been reconstituted and continued to develop in the wake of the fire until the Second World War. And the story that I had heard was that the, the records had been all confiscated by the Nazis, as they did with in Jewish communities all throughout occupied Europe. They would take the records and do research on them and try to find anti-German conspiracies in their mm. correspondence and things like that. So the Nazis had seized this... Archives, the so. Nazis seized that archive that had been produced from 1917 to 1941. The question mm -hmm. is, where was it? And when I went to Salonika, it wasn't there. I found a stack of documents, you know, maybe two inches high. I was there on a Fulbright, and I said, great, I'm going to spend my year decoding this two inches worth of, of documents uh, that were mostly in, in Judeo-Spanish and the Soletreo script, and I'll do some oral histories, and I'll, I'll get my Greek better. But as I continued to explore further, I discovered that the archives had been dispersed all across the globe. Some had been confiscated, reconfiscated by the Soviets. They took some of these archives that they found in Germany, brought them to Moscow, and they locked them up in what had been the Soviet secret military archive. And the existence of those materials only became available, only became known in the, in the 90s after the collapse mm -hmm. of the Soviet Union. So I went to Moscow, looked at this stuff. Some of the other stuff I discovered had been actually returned from Germany by the American military to Greece, but because of the unstable political climate in Greece in the immediate post-war years and mm -hmm. in the subsequent decades, some of that stuff wound up being siphoned out of the country and sent to Jerusalem, to the Central Archives for the History of the Jewish People. Yet another segment of these materials wound up being, uh, being situated in New York. So I had to go all all across the all across the globe, really, right. in, on on a hunt for these records. And in Salonika itself, I wound up discovering during my time there that some of the materials that had been returned had been sort of forgotten about, and they were sitting in a in a basement closet. <laughs> and so uh, there was like it was like a, a dream, a researcher's dream. I found this untapped archive sitting there, and I wound up cataloging that material, and I used that stuff along with the material in Moscow, New York, and Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. This became the basis of the, 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 the archive of the, of the sources through which I tried to tell the story of Salonika's Jews in their own voice. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, I think it's a fascinating story uh, to a certain degree. Obviously, all archives are contested. All archives are, you know, constructions of connections in the state and the people uh, who write into them and uh, and develop them. But I think it's somehow it's Jewish archives uh, that become, I don't know, specifically dispersed in 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 new ways. I'm just thinking of the the story behind the Iraqi Jewish archive in Baghdad. You know that it was in it was seized by the the Mukhabarat, the secret intelligence services. It was in a basement during the American bombing in 2003 that the basement was flooded. You know, they take these, you know, the Americans come in, they rescue it, and then they transport it off along with the Bath Party archives uh, to to America. And I think, and then it's sitting there being restored. And now there's this question of where does it go? Who owns it? Whose uh, heritage is it? And where, what happens to it? You know, it's the same question is being asked on a it hasn't been uh, much as much fanfare surrounding it, but same questions are being asked with regard to the archives of the Jewish community of Salonika. Um, the, there is a remnant of the Jewish community that still lives today in Salonika. They, by the way, the Jewish community is still organized according with some modifications according to that same law that was passed in 1920, mm-hmm. uh, recognizing the Jewish community as a, as a corporate entity before Greek law. They are waiting for the return of their archives, the mm. leaders of that community. Um, they want to have the stuff from Moscow back in their possession. And um, it's something that they've been working on through the Ministry of Greek Foreign Affairs for, for many years now. But there's also still contestation. If the archives were to be returned, would they be Greek state property or would they be the property of the Jewish community mm-hmm. itself? And I don't think that that issue has been resolved. And the, um, the archives have not been, uh, not been forthcoming on the part of, uh, part of the Russian foreign, uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs. I mean, I'm just wondering why, why do the Russians want to keep on? Well, one of the stories, on I'm not sure, it's apocryphal. I don't know. I, I, I haven't seen documentation, but this is one of the stories that's circulating is that the, uh, it has to do with the fate of a Russian flag seized uh during the crimean war and that apparently there were some russian flags that were uh housed in greek monasteries during the crimean war crimean war 1853 right uh, not the most recent right <laughs> and so one uh, a number of people told me the story that if greece returns the uh flags from the crimean war the uh, Russian uh, Russian government will return the Jewish archives that they acquired in the wake of the Second World War. Now, there are probably a bunch of other politics that are involved in this enterprise, but I think even that, whether or not that story about the, the flag is true, I think it, it illustrates the extent to which uh, the, the status of these archives continue to be both contested and also uh, let your imagination, uh, you know, captivate your imagination. Mm-hmm. So I think there is also another dimension to 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 these archives uh, to reconstruct or to to retell the the history of the Jewish communities of the Ottoman Empire, um, which is the more personal and familiar uh, documents and 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 belongings that people brought uh, after they left uh, the Ottoman lands. Uh, and I think your uh, kind of your coming to the University of Washington was one case that uh, suddenly the the the, the the community, the Sephardic community of Seattle, started to unearth in this myriad of sources that they have somehow at home, and they didn't know what to do. So, I kind of wanted to ask: uh, you're you're writing this history uh, that where locality is so central, but suddenly the sources that are telling you this story 
after after 1940s become these transnational uh, bodies of sources, these archives that travel uh, through different localities and are either preserved in the memory of like people's identity or in their houses or just forgotten. So, so I with your sense of that sources. Well, the start of my research enterprise begins with sources such as those. I mean, my first uh, experience with seeing written Judeo-Spanish, seeing the Solitreo script comes from documents from my own family mm -hmm. that um, I would come to discover after I was able to decipher them that they described the really the fate of my grandfather's oldest brother who remained in Greece and sort of his attempts to become part of Greece uh, and uh, also the the fate of the family in the in the wake of the of the German occupation and those 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 letters those family letters wind up revealing that uh, you know that my great uncle and his wife and two children, along with the majority of the Jews of Salonika, met their deaths in, 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 you know, in Auschwitz. And that these letters then, and a few postcards, they became sort of the, the artifacts, the remnants, the memories, the embodied uh, memories of that branch of the family, that lost branch of, of the family that I saw now that I could read those documents, I saw in there an opportunity to reclaim that aspect of my family history that maybe had been forgotten mm -hmm. or silenced or hadn't been spoken about. And I think that those are the same kinds of motivations that I see here in Seattle among people who come to me with their family documents and their family books, which are, you know, in, in Ladino and in Hebrew script, but they can't they can't read them, but they've held on to them. And I just want to mention that Seattle is the center of the largest Sephardic community in the U.S. Is that correct? Well, one, one of them. One of it them. also okay. depends on how you count oh, okay. and also who you count as Sephardic. So maybe a, a community that is still organized of Jews from Ladino-speaking families of the former Ottoman Empire. But if we get like Persian Jews or Syrian Jews right. into the question, then oh, okay. it becomes a little bit different. But yeah, so Seattle does, it, it's turned out that Seattle also had quite a number of rabbinical families settled here and they brought with them quite a lot of uh, books and, and manuscripts, some of them sitting right here in my office. And it's been really a, remar a marvelous experience to try to uh, delve into those materials and, and really uncover them and uncover the stories, not only that are contained in the text, but the, the stories of the voyages of the text as artifacts mm -hmm. um, over the last hundred years. So, so maybe to return to, to, to Jewish Salonika, you, you mentioned the fate of your uncle and the fate of your um, of your family, uh, so I, I don't know if you would you you would like to expand a little bit on the fate of the Jewish community, the fate of Jewish Salonika, particularly in the 1940s. Right. I mean, we know that the Nazis killed off the community; almost everyone died, uh, yeah. and which is this basically the story of Jews in Greece. Right. Uh, but you know, how does your work, uh, this kind of interwar uh, post 1913 to 1942 uh, Jewish community of Salonika, kind of transform or change our understanding? Of the of the end of that community, sort of the impression that has been circulating until now is that in the wake of the transfer of Salonika from Ottoman to Greek rule, Jews were kind of sitting ducks almost. You know, they were they they were excluded from Greek society. They also didn't want to become part of Greek society, and that when the Nazis come and occupy the city and deport the Jews, the Nazis actually contribute to fulfilling the Greek nationalist goals of Hellenizing the city mm. and reducing or removing the Jewish imprint from the urban fabric. 
And what I suggest in my research is that actually Jews were very much engaged in the processes of trying to transform themselves from Ottomans into Hellenes or Greeks. And they were also very much involved in trying to understand what it meant to be a Greek. Mm -hmm. Now, the assumption has been that uh, Greek would mean Greek-speaking also and Greek Orthodox Christian. Right. And we see among Jews that they develop a slightly different um, categorization system, which I argue they, uh, they borrow or repurpose from the Ottoman realm. Hmm. They refer to Hellenism as a kind of a supranational or umbrella kind of identity in the same way that they had a generation before referred to Ottomanism as a kind of a supranational or supracommunal identity in which you could be Ottoman, but you could also be Armenian, Greek, and Jewish, and I Turkish, see. say. And they use that same kind of schema to map on Hellenism. So they say, we can all be Hellenic citizens, just like our parents were Ottoman citizens. Mm -hmm. But to be Hellenic citizens, uh, we can be Hellenic citizens, but we can also be Jews and Greeks. Right. So they insist, actually, on referring to themselves as Hellenes, Hellenos. Mm -hmm. And that there are, among the, the Hellenes, there are at least two kinds of Hellenes. There are Jewish Hellenes, and there are Greek Hellenes. So rather than see Greek and Hellenic as the same, they see Greek as a subcategory of Hellene. And by Greek, they mean Greek-speaking Christian. Yeah. And so they, 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 the very creative act of trying to shape a different version of Greek national identity, but one that ultimately, when push comes to shove and the Germans come, uh, it does not create the kind of horizontal bonds that mm. they may have hoped would emerge from that. Because in the end of the day, the Greek Christians saw themselves as Greek Christians who were separate from the Jews, and the fate of the Jews was going to be separate from that of the of the Greek Christians. And I think that contributes, you know, it's it's codified in law, again, the absence of the possibility of intermarriage mm. between the two communities. So when you speak of the Greek national family, Jews are not literally not part of that because they cannot actually enter mm. the Greek family because they are not permitted to marry in. So on one hand, the the very mechanisms that allowed this community to kind of remain separate and to, in essence, flourish, and which were, you know, adaptations from the Ottoman period, also gave them an option of joining the Greek nation, but also didn't allow them. Yeah, it set a limit. Yeah. It set a very clear, a very clear limit about belonging. Hellenic citizen is one thing. You know, you could die, fight, and die for your country. But whether you're really Greek, mm -hmm. really Greek, but which which comes to be understood as not only in culture, they thought they could enter that realm through culture, but it turned out it was really going to be along the lines of other parts of Europe and Eastern Europe, along ethnicity or or, or blood, mm -hmm. as the language of the day. Well, Devin, uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Unfortunately, you know, there's so many more questions we wanted to speak about. We want to speak about the working class of Salonika about the Jewish community and how uh, it integrated with uh, working class politics, you know, imaginations of Jewish nationalism, rethinking Zionism and other forms of Jewish community in the early 20th century. All of this, I recommend that you check out his book. It's called Jewish Salonika uh, Between the Ottoman Empire and Modern Greece. It came out on Stanford University Press uh, about a year ago. In paperback. In paperback. So it's very cheap <laughs> and uh, affordable for all you students out there. 
So thank you again, Devin. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure speaking with you, Nir and Oscar. Thanks. And uh, for those listeners that want to find out more, come to our website. Uh, Devin's going to provide just a few books, uh, sources that you can go to and uh, look for more information. Join our Facebook community. You'll find a whole bunch of other like-minded listeners on there. Comment on our uh, episodes. Give us your impressions. We want to hear from you. Uh, Until next time, we hope uh, that you tune in again. Bye.